Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, as folks who've listened to the show know, I, uh, I earned a PhD in the uh, study of religion, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the problem of uh, religious experience. And there's a lot of things to say about the, uh, the problems and uh, possibilities raised by the topic of religious experience, which, you know, concludes what we might think of as spiritual experience, not just talking about traditional religion, but about those extraordinary experiences that um, visit so many human beings uh, today and uh, throughout uh, recorded history. Uh, and the question is, what do, we, uh, what do we do with these things? Because there's kind of a fundamental problem. On the, the one hand, uh, it seems like people's experiences uh, usher them into realms of reality. There's a, often a tremendous sense that what is being experienced is profoundly real, um, the revelations become the, uh, the, the, the seeds of new religions, of new ethical systems, of new visions of the world. Uh, gods are encountered, uh, spirits of the forest. Uh, this material is an incredibly vivid. There's no way to say that these, these experiences are light. In fact, they are some of the most important things in human history because they've really transformed uh, the way culture and consciousness have unfolded. Uh, over the centuries, over the millennia. Um, but there's something kind of weird here because they're all so different. Uh, you know, it, it, can we really say that a, uh, a Buddhist's experience of uh, emptiness is the same thing as a, um, uh, a Hindu's experience of Brahma is the same thing as uh, a experience of a, of a Sioux having a vision quest or um, a Taoist uh, doing internal alchemy. Uh, so there's this tremendous range of experiences uh, within uh, uh, human religious phenomenology. Uh, so how do, how do they all fit together? Um, you know, some people want to say that if you boil them all down, you get to one thing, you know, uh, what we'll be talking about in this episode is the perennialist view that really there's just sort of one spiritual reality that people have different perspectives on. But increasingly people are like, well, you know, maybe people are just making it all up. Maybe this is just a way for that the mind kind of creates its own reality, that people use cultural expectations, the the, the stories that are around in their own cultures, and then somehow they kind of boot up in this sort of virtual reality of extraordinary experience, which is we can understand neurologically or something like that. And that's an increasingly uh, popular view, but it's also very unsatisfying. So we find our Selves, uh, between uh, the classic Scylla and Charybdis, these two uh, poles of our understanding of religious experience, and it's really quite a conundrum. And um, uh, my current work involves thinking through this in a, in a variety of different ways, and one of uh, the, the, the central inspirations for uh, thinking about this particular problem um, uh, is our guest today, uh, Jorge Ferrer. And uh, he is a uh, professor of East-West Psychology at the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies here in San Francisco. And uh, he uh, is the author of a couple of books. Um, the most sort of revolutionary one came out in the early 2000s called Revisioning Transpersonal Theory, A Participatory Vision, 
of human spirituality. And he recently just came up with uh, with another book that is carrying on some of the themes and uh, taking them into new directions and with new twists and turns. And this book is called Participation and the Mystery. Uh, and these are scholarly books. They they dive into uh, academic debates about perennialism and um, participation and construction and inaction and all these kinds of uh, sort of uh, jargony buzzwords that that scholars tend to come up with as they get down into the nitty gritty. Um, but the core of the vision is uh, uh, both radical and, to my mind, extremely resonant. Very, very worth um, engaging on a deep level because it allows us to navigate and to reframe some of the expectations and ideas that we bring to religious experience. Whether we're trying to interpret our own experiences understand how they fit into the history of world religion, or if we're analyzing other uh, kinds of spiritual phenomenology that we find records of or in other uh, cultures and other traditions. So it's a really uh, vital way of thinking through uh, these issues at a, at a time in history when so many different views of experience, uh, religion, and spirituality are all clashing and commingling uh, in this marvelous and somewhat confusing matrix of uh, postmodern globalist uh, reality. Uh, so I'm very happy that uh, Jorge decided to uh, join us here on Expanding Mind. So with no further ado, Jorge, thanks for uh, for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you, Eric, and uh, <clears throat> thanks for giving this really great background and uh, a very beautiful introduction to our conversation. So thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're, you're a transpersonal psychologist, and, and uh, transpersonal psychology really emerged, uh, you know, in the, in the early late 60s, early 70s, in a lot of ways in response to the extraordinary range of religious and spiritual experiences that people were having, partly through psychedelics. Yeah partly through meditation, partly through the turn to yoga. I mean, the countercultural religion was really about cultivating these extraordinary experiences. And so <laughs> psychologists were going, what do we do with these things? Exactly. Uh, you know, how do we fit them together? Um, and so, but the, the, a lot of the transpersonal psychology of the early phase is what we call perennialist. And, mm -hmm. and that's a term I'd mentioned before. And I'd just love to have you talk a little bit about what that perennialist orientation was and why it was so important for psychologists trying to think about these transpersonal states. Yes, thank, thank you, Eric. Uh, yeah, we need, we need to understand, like in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, when transpersonal psychology was born, it was born out of the, as you mentioned, out of the confluence of uh, at least like three distinct uh, currents. One was like a Western psychology, in particular humanistic psychology, the work of Abraham Maslow and uh, Carl Rogers and all these people, and also the depth psychological tradition uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, on the other was like, um, you know, the counterculture of the 60s, you know, and with that, uh, all the psychedelic experimentation. And then the, the third current was like the entry into the West uh, of, uh, you know, an, a tremendous influx of uh, Eastern traditions. Uh, you had the writings of Alan Watts, of course, and, uh, and Diti Suzuki introducing Zen and Taoism, you know. 
So it was like this kind of like confluence that um, uh, led some some people, not only transpersonal psychologists, but also uh, people in the counterculture to start bridging those walls, making connections. For example, people who have like this uh, impressive psychedelic experiences, and then they will read uh, Alan Watts, the taboo against knowing who you are, or they will read Diti Suzuki speaking about Zen Buddhism, and they would realize, oh, aha, so what I had was not just like a, you know, like a trip or like something kind of a, we are produced by this substance called LSD or by these uh, mushrooms, but uh, <clears throat> actually what I experienced uh, is very parallel, if not identical, uh, to what this kind of like uh, is being described uh, in the Eastern traditions as higher stages uh, of development or higher stages or states of the mind or the enlightened mind. So that was uh, one of the confluences. <clears throat> and the other very important one for, for this kind of like perennialist uh, understanding that was emerging at that time was Abraham Maslow uh, equation between what he called the peak experience, right? Those the moments most joyful uh, and uh, ecstatic in one's life, and what Diti Suzuki uh, calls Satori in, the, in terms of like Buddhist, same Buddhist, you know. So Abe Maslow like made this equation, you know. So uh, as you were saying, like there was all these like different experiences, all these different uh, readings coming into the world, you know. And then uh, the first transpersonal psychologists like Maslow and then Stanislav Grof, you know, and also then a bit later Ken Wilber were also highly influenced by, you know, not only by Alan Watts, by Aldous Huxley, also by Houston Smith who um, was also like a student of uh, some of the most uh, influential perennialist thinkers called traditionalist thinkers like Shuon was one of his teachers, you know, and um, those through those influences, like all these kind of early perennialist schemes came into transpersonal psychology. It helped them to, to order, it helped them to to like put some order into all those different experiences. For example, this idea from perennialism, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that traditions are very diverse at the exoteric level, at the level uh, that is kind of like more institutionalized, uh, less mystical, you know. But as you go more mystical, as you go more esoteric, as you go to the you know mystical flame or core of the traditions, then they start kind of like coming together, as if they were. As I don't know if you to use one of the traditional images, like different kind of like. Uh, pathways, you know, uh, coming from different places at the base of a mountain, but they all reach the same peak. So this is one of the metaphors that was being used at that time. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, the other metaphor that uh, was kind of used uh, that comes from the Hindu, but also the Sufi tradition, is that metaphor, that beautiful image of the different blind men touching different parts of the same elephant, right? And uh, the idea here is that different uh, religions are like the blind men, and the elephant is like this kind of like a single spiritual reality that has some kind of objective nature, right? Uh, and, but the different traditions only touch one part or see it from different perspectives. So some of them, they say, oh, it's like, a, you know, it's like a trunk, Some it's like the, these big ears. You know, and so forth. So um, I can go on and on, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here to see if you if you want to 
ask more particular questions about this or take it in a different direction? Sure. I mean, one of the things that I've always read about perennialism is I've also seen it in in a sort of uh, historical context itself where – um, you know, in the at the end of the 19th century, we, with the first world parliament of religions, yes. everyone starts everyone starts to realize that the future is a global future, and that there are many different paths, and that if we don't come up with some way of connecting them, of having a peace uh, between different traditions, then then the global future is going to be even more difficult. So there was a huge movement at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century to come up with sort of global ways of thinking, yes. including religious ones. And so perennialism, while it partly reflected this esoteric tradition that if you get to the core of of very different religions, there was some kind of continuity or there was some sense of of seeing the same reality. There was also, I think, a kind of political context where people really were trying to come up with a universal set of ethics that would enable human beings in different traditions and different cultures to to share a common investment in the core issues of religion. And in that sense, it was very noble. I and mean, when you read through Aldous Huxley's book about the, the you know, the perennial uh, philosophy, and it, 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 you really get the sense of, an, of a real urgency about these issues. Yes. But from our perspective now, uh, you know, 50 years later, 70 years later, from this moment that a lot of those universalist uh, dreams were are much more problematic than they they looked at the time. Uh, we're at a very different age where people are more critical about the attempt to mash different things together. In, in, instead of unity, our era is one of, of difference, of distinctions, of multiplicity, of multiple perspectives. And yeah. so in some ways, the, the, the perennialism uh, now looks a little bit more like some kind of forced, you know, attempt to bring everybody together, uh, and it, it has to ignore a lot of, of of real differences between these, you know, prof- even the most authentic or profoundly experiential dimensions of different traditions. I mean, that's just one problem with perennialism, and I know that there are some other really significant ones that you have talked about. So, what what are some of the other problems? with the perennial perspective when we think about yes. the phenomenology of religious experience. <laughs> yes, um, th- that's exactly right what you said. Uh, um, you know, there was like a very novel intention and uh, both political and also bring like this kind of like mystical ecumenism, you know, bringing religious traditions together. And we, you know, today we can sympathize with that tremendously, right? Uh, you know, there is so much interreligious violence in the globe, you know, even perhaps perhaps much more accentuated in different ways than uh, it was like uh, 40, 50 years ago. So um, there is something valid and important about that uh, ideal, that search for that kind of like a unity uh, uh, in religion. The problem, as I see it, and this connects to your question, is like uh, the way that unity was searched was very problematic and ultimately ideological and ultimately backfire. Let me just give you some examples. Uh, you mentioned the Parliament of Religion, uh, I think it was in 1893, you know, where Swami Vivekananda, you know, like uh, gave his famous speech, you know, presenting uh, Hinduism or uh, 
in, in reality, a, a neo-Hinduism, like a new version of Hinduism, you know, or neo-Advaita Vedanta as the universal religion, as the religion that could include all others. And he was trying to do that in this ecumenical spirit, you know. But of course, like when you have this religion that includes all others, but not vice versa, there is a problem. You are creating a hierarchy. And this is what all perennialist uh, projects like uh, ended with. These hierarchical gradations of traditions, you know, and uh, and this is something that is, as you know, you are a student of religion uh, in Rise, you know, so you know, like uh, the tremendous diversity of uh, hierarchical uh, rankings of traditions offered by all religions, you know, and uh, very often within a single religion, like, uh, for example, you know, Kukai from esoteric Buddhism, Shingon Buddhist, could arrange all rival schools, both Buddhist and not Buddhist, in a hierarchy, you know, and his own esoteric Buddhist was at the top. That's what Swami Vivekananda did. That's what, like, the theologian Karl Runner did when he said, well, uh, all uh, practitioners from all the traditions are, although they don't know it, anonymous Christians. Well, uh, if you ask a Buddhist, uh, they would say, I'm not an anonymous Christian. I'm a Buddhist and I don't believe in a personal God, right? So all those projects, despite how well-intentioned they were, they were ultimately ideological and they would also like uh, be promoting uh, in a more or less conscious way one favor a spiritual tradition to the top. I call that uh, spiritual narcissism. Spiritual narcissism is the unconscious or unconscious tendency to privilege one's own spiritual choice or orientation above all others. And all these perennialist kind of like uh, schemes and understandings, they, they led to that. <clears throat> and still there, there is something um, valuable and valid uh, in searching for that kind of unity, right? That kind of like uh, glue that brings us all together. But um, here I follow, um, the, you know, uh, you know the, the Sufi mystic Rumi, you know, said something that stick, stick with me. He said, you know, perhaps you have been looking in the branches what you can only found in the roots. And um, this kind of like uh, was important for me because, uh, you know, of course, Rumi was talking about something different, about finding the deep root of your being, you know, as he spoke in other of his poems, you know. But uh, in a way, like um, the way I see it now is like that unity cannot be found in like the, the mystical branches. I see like the different religious traditions as branching out of the same um, uh, generative creative root, you know, uh, that we all participate, we're, we all belong to the same species, we all have like this creative energy of life, you know, within us, you know, but then that creative energy, like uh, through history and through tremendous amount of contextual historical variables, manifests and branches out in different directions that provide different uh, existential solutions to the problems of the human condition, to human suffering, uh, to alienation, to disconnection from nature, from, from that energy, from the cosmos, you know. So the different traditions, I see that they go in different directions, you know, providing different solutions. And it's a mistake to reduce them or to kind of like uh, put them in a ranking uh, holistically, you know. All traditions have uh, something to teach, to each other, all traditions have something to learn from each other, you know, and that creates like a more, um, I would say, like more symmetrical uh, and more uh, fruitful um, arena for the encounter of traditions.
Yeah. What's so, interesting is that you can really you can really understand this difference by thinking through some of these core analogies or metaphors that people use. For example, you you mentioned the classic one: many ma- many paths all lead to the same mountain. But already with that image, we have uh, a hierarchy of 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 ascent. Yes, there are many paths from the different valleys, but they all go up. And when they get to the top of the up, they're, they're, they discover their oneness. Well, this is already, we can see, a kind of artifact of a certain way of privileging, quote-unquote, higher states or higher levels of reality or transcendence over right. imminence. You know, so for an indig- from an indigenous perspective, you're like, yes, it's important to go up on the mountains, but it's also important to go uh, into the valleys and to go into the caves and to go onto the plains. Like it's there's already something hidden inside that metaphor of the mountain. And yeah. of course, from, from what you're saying, it's not that many paths lead to the same mountaintop. It's that there are many mountains. Correct. <laughs> and maybe you get up to the top of the mountain and you can see the top of the other mountain and you can wave. But, yes. you know, and you're on the same planet, but it's not the same mountain. Uh, so it's a it's a really quite a radical vision because um, it, in, it's not just saying, however, that everybody's just kind of in their own little cultural universe. That's the difference is that you're saying that these experiences are real, that there is an element of creative, co-creative reality making that is going on in these different traditions. It's not just that they're like running through little rituals and then they're having imaginative experiences that are just based on their expectations. They're just sort of hallucinating these experiences. It's that the reality itself is is able to grow and, and co-create with us and through us in these different directions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, this is the core insight of uh, what is called in philosophy a participatory epistemology. The idea that, you know, and, you know, scientists tell us that, right, that we have molecules from the Big Bang, that, we, you know, we are, we are at essential part of the cosmos, we're part of the cosmos, the creativity of the cosmos, whatever it is, uh, in whatever way I understand it is, is you know, is, is blooming through us, you know, so we can kind of participate and we kind of like co-create with that kind of like generative energy. And this is also um, connects with your, uh, you know, special metaphors, because uh, I think you are completely right. The, the problem with those metaphors is that like they they kind of already privilege this kind of transcendentalist kind of uh, understandings of the spirituality, going up, you know, transcending, living, living behind and below, you know. Uh, what is what we leave behind and below? Earth, <laughs> the body, and women normally, you know, like uh, in all the patriarchal religious traditions, you know, and sexuality, of course. Uh, so I'm a big promoter of what I call like this also embodied spirituality, you know, in which... Uh, in which, like, we are kind of like uh, inviting the fullness of who we are, not only uh, kind of a heart chakra spirituality that has defined, you know, prevalent trends in many traditions, you know, the cultivation of the peaceful heart, of the subtleness of consciousness, you know, of absorptions, you know, of contemplation. All of these are things that are really beautiful and important. But if they leave the body and sexuality behind, we're also leaving the earth behind and we're leaving so many essential dimensions of ourselves and our life behind. Uh, and that is obviously problematic from a contemporary perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable. Just the the other day, I've been reading through the the Buddhist suttas um, and you know, sort of tracing the life of the Buddha. And I came across this extraordinary passage where he's telling the the bhikkhus, um, it's it would be the male bhikkhus. It would be better for you to put your member inside the mouths of snakes yeah. than to <laughs> enter a woman. And I'm like. Whoa. And then, you know, I, I you know, I, I've spent a lot like you, I've spent a lot of time around Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. I don't quite consider myself a Buddhist, but I'm certainly a, a Buddhist practitioner in many ways. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very aware of all the, the, the ways that contemporary Buddhism tries to engage these issues of of women, of the body, that there's kind of a, a liberal progressive spirit for a lot of uh, a lot of Buddhists. And yet when you look at the, the the classic material, I mean, it's very clear they're like, you know, the body is a sack of shit. We got to get out of this place. It sucks. Don't buy any of it. You know, yes. stay away from women. I mean, it's it's so ascetic. It's so harsh. And in a way, like there's all of this kind of elaborate justification over the years, you know, as Buddhism, of course, changes really dramatically. Zen is not at all like early, you know, uh, or what we call Theravada Buddhism uh, today, uh, just to take one example. But at the same time, it does feel like even even with Buddhism, which is such a, you know, in many ways, very much associated with liberal progressive values of the body and women and the environment, et cetera, et cetera, that if you really look at it, you're like, wow, it's coming from a very different source. And you're, in a way, asking us to be more upfront with uh, the dangers of paths that are based on this transcendental desire to escape the body and escape earth and escape yes. death escape women if for men exactly. and and to be really like look this is part of the tradition and we may have to you know um even turn away from some of those states there's one of my favorite parts of your, of your new book is you have a revision of the bodhisattva vow you know the traditional bodhisattva vow in buddhism is like I'm, you know, I'm such a great meditator that I would actually be able to achieve nirvana and, and get off the wheel of, 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 re, of reincarnation and rebirth. But I'm not going to do that until every other being achieves this state as well. I mean, it's this great kind of saint-like vow that, that Mahayana Buddhists take. And you have a different version of it uh, that involves the kind of lure of higher states of consciousness, of these states of absorption, of, of tremendous clarity, of, of uh, the witness consciousness, and all of these really extraordinary experiences that are available to us. But you have a way of kind of reframing them. And I, I just love to hear you talk about your, your new bodhisattva vow. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds, sounds like... Um... I hope it doesn't sound inflated, you know, to a revision something as the, as the Bodhisattva vow. But uh, for me, it's important. It's, it's really, I just want to be very personal here because, uh, as you know, because we have talked, uh, you know, I spent like 15 years in Buddhism. I have a lot of respect for the tradition, uh, even though I'm also critical, especially about those aspects that you were speaking to, you know. And... Um, and of course, the tradition, as you mentioned, is reconstructing itself today, not only in the States, but even in Asia as well, you know, in, in towards more embodied understandings, you know. Uh, I mean, I've been like in workshops or 
classes in which uh, you know Buddhist teacher would, would would work with someone from Gabriel Roth School of Static Dancing and would kind of dance the paramitas, you know. I mean, talk about embodying Buddhism, right? And this, of course, is still happening mostly in California, <laughs> but I think it's going to be extending, you know. I also met like this a Buddhist nun in Barcelona uh, from the Tibetan tradition and uh, like a you know lineage, you know. Uh, legitimate Buddhist nun who is working with ayahuasca, you know, or was working with ayahuasca and uh, so that would, the students, they could like through visualizations and ayahuasca go deeper into the Buddhist path. So there's so much going on in the Buddhist tradition that is very exciting. So that being said, uh, my, my, my revision of that vow comes from my own personal history, you know, like I was in Buddhist for many years and, uh, and I was like at some point, like at least believing I was kind of like uh, getting some sense of glimpses of uh, liberation uh, in meditation. I was doing long retreats. I was talking with teachers. I felt I was like getting some really real, real glimpses of uh, you know, what is called emptiness, the codependent origination in experiential felt sense, uh, compassion, a discernment, all those beautiful Buddhist spiritual qualities was starting to unfold uh, in, in my experience. And at the same time, I was very aware that uh, there were uh, other dimensions of my being that there were still the needed world. They were more alienated, things around my sexuality and my body, you know. And, uh, and I, I realized how easy it would be at that point to, uh, not, not easy, but how tempting it would be to go fully on into that liberation of the conscious mind, of uh, of the mind unconscious, you know, and uh, and then the, I realized the danger because, um, you know, normally we feel so identified with our conscious mind, right? So if we achieve a liberation there. Uh, the danger is that we believe that we're fully liberated when actually other dimensions of our being could be still very alienated. And, uh, and you see this problem, of course, in many uh, genuinely enlightened teachers in many ways, you know, who um, uh, had like a lot of interpersonal, sexual um, problems with the students, you know, the typical sexual scandals of the gurus, you know. And uh, we could, you know, its, it's situation is different and... Uh, you know, we need to look case by case, of course. But uh, I think in some cases it's very clear that some of these people, they reach certain forms of awakening uh, in their consciousness and mind. But in other parts of themselves, they were quite underdeveloped or not so awake. So with that in mind, I propose like this uh, revision of the Bodhisattva vow that I call the Integral Bodhisattva, um, in which the conscious minds renounces its own full liberation until the body, the heart, and the primary world, the instinctive world, can be free as well from alienating tendencies. So that's that's kind of like the, the gist of it. Well, what I love about that is that it acknowledges that rather than just saying, oh, it's all one, or if you just work on consciousness, everything else will come along, it acknowledges that there is a cost. Just the way that the original Bodhisattva acknowledges that there would be tr a tremendous value in achieving nirvana in that traditional situation. But you're going to renounce that good in order to save all beings. That in, in your, the, why, partly why you're, that your, your revision struck with, uh, with me was because it acknowledges that these higher states of consciousness, these liberated states of consciousness, are real potentials. They are really things that human beings can achieve, and yet, given our current cir circumstances, given the, 
this, not just the state of the world, but the, sp- the state of understanding, of critical understanding, of a kind of, you know, uh, embrace of all of these elements of our being that have historically been denigrated, that that uh, there's an ethics even to not necessary to, to renouncing the po- possibility, at least for now, of those higher states be in order to continue to work on these other dimensions. And so it's it, it, it's a more honest way of acknowledging the pull rather than what a lot of people do, which is just to say, oh, it's all going to lead you to the same place. And, you know, people because you can get lost in body practices, you can get lost in sacred sexuality, you can yes. get lost in all of these things <laughs> as well. You, you, you need a balance. But um, so I, I thought that was a very uh, a, a very uh, clear way of kind of putting the issues in, in terms of a, a sort of choice or a kind of ethics um, as well as just a, a, another yes. model of things. Yeah, I, I agree. Like uh, I think our current condition, especially with uh, the ecological uh, problems that we're facing, the, the social political issues, both in the states and all the first world. Uh, I mean, really, there is like a, an, I think emerging and also like uh, ongoing already because it has been going for us for a while. Call towards this kind of more democratization or horizontalization of uh, spirituality that may call us to sacrifice some of those spiritual heights, you know. Um, um, of course, uh, it can be argued that we can have both, and that's that's possible. Um, I think it's important, as you mentioned, to have some balance, you know, to have both um, enlivening uh, energies, you know, within ourselves, but also enlightening, you know, like discernment and power, you know, so that we can engage constructively in the transformation, not only of our lives but our communities and our societies and uh, and the world because it's like sorely needed oh absolutely uh it's it's and and one of the values of your model of the of participation is that it underscores the creative aspect of our own seeking and of our own practice and of our own engagement. It's not like there's a pre-given world that we just slot ourselves into. It's that our, our practice, what we're doing with our minds, what we're doing with our hearts, with our bodies, that that work is itself creating the realities that it encounters to some degree, not entirely, but to some yes. degree. <laughs> And yeah. and that's a it's a really remarkable idea and and I think it it you know at first it seems kind of odd like what does that mean uh, how could that be um, but the more that I've thought that I've sat with it and and thought with it I it actually seems in when in many ways the most parsimonious way to to account for the incredible range of differences within traditions let alone between traditions um, and and without just saying, oh, everyone's just making it up. Oh, everyone's just basing it on their own cultural stories. It's just an invent- a human cultural invention, these gods and planes of reality and different dimensions and different kinds of uh, intuitions and experiences of connection yeah. with different forces. It's like, no, it's not. It's, they're not just inventions, but they're not all part of one big hierarchical structure where you're, we're all climbing up the mountain together. It's that we're involved in this kind of it's so it's this it's this sort of uh, what, what I don't even know what's a good metaphor for you talk about a rhizome or a, a tree where, yes. where branches keep splitting off. It's a much more fecund model of, of reality. Did, did, did that come to you over time or was it really kind of a concentrated period where you were like, hey, we can just stop thinking about 
these hierarchical models and, and, to, and to start to understand things as co-creative that we're creating with the mystery. Did, did that just, did it evolve over time? Did it have to do with personal experiences you had? How, how did you come to, to sort of make this yes, you know, radical uh, revision? Yeah, um, all the above. Uh, <laughs> it has to do with personal experiences, also with a lot of reading, and also with, um, you know, like um, before coming to the States in the early 90s uh, to get my PhD at CIS, you know, um, I was in touch with this body of work that I also speak about it in the book in one of the chapters, Holistic Transformationalist Sexuality in Spain. And uh, and but that body of work was very influential because uh, you had like the three... Um, the three forms of uh, participatory co-creation embedded in this world, you know, it was a world that invited all dimensions of human being, including the body of sexual and sexuality, to participate, you know, in your, you know, integral growth, you know, including spiritual. Also, it was highly interpersonal. Uh, it was based in these interactive embodied meditations, in which meditation practice was done not only like uh, by yourself, but also in contact with uh, other people, like chakras together, and that was really really powerful uh like for example these meditations in which like uh um you know like uh heart chakra would be uh, in contact with like um like the um, um hara chakra and things like this you know very powerful and then also uh, there was like this sense of transpersonal co-creation you know there was like this like this um creativity at play through all those practices you know that uh would lead different people uh, in different spiritual trajectories and that's that's something that is what i call a spiritual individuation and um and that's something that I have always been very struck, you know, like by the tremendous diversity of people's spiritual trajectories, you know. Some people go from from Christianity to shamanism to Buddhism, and then some people start syncretizing parts of different traditions, and other people just go um, in opposite directions, you know. So, and um, and for me, like what is valid is whatever works, you know, for people to become more available human beings, less self-centered, less narcissistic, you know, more uh, transformative agents in our cultures. But to come back to your question, uh, something also very important uh, in the development of my war, there were two other things, so a few other things. One was, uh, um, you know, the only book I brought with me from Spain as I was traveling in the early 90s to study my new, my new life and studies here in California was Francisco Varela and uh, Leonor Roche and Ivan Thompson's The Embodied Mind. So the inactive paradigm of cognition was for me uh, very important. Uh, as soon as I read that, uh, that book, I realized that, like, it was like a could pave like a middle middle ground, you know, adopted that paradigm to spiritual knowing and spiritual matters between these two positions that uh, we still see today in religious studies and culture. And I think that you were speaking to them in different ways with your with your comments. One position that affirms the, the ontology of the spiritual worlds, but normally it's a very confessional, you know, it's theological or, or this perennial is, is there is ontology, but there is just one single spiritual world, right? And then the other position is that friends plurality, diversification, context, but then denies ontology. 
that's like the you know the more postmodern or contextualist positions within religious studies and academia you know so in a way it's like what uh, what i felt there was something something i felt that both positions were saying something valid you know i thought like with the perennialists and with many religious practitioners and also based on my own experiences and we can talk a bit more about those later if you want i i was convinced that it was something ontologically rich you know, in those subtle worlds and uh, those encounters with like this, you know, uh, uh, apparently autonomous beings, you know, that uh, sometimes are much wiser than you and that you cannot know things that they tell you and so forth, you know. But at the same time, uh, also, I saw, I was discerning that there was something tremendously valuable in this uh, diversity, you know. There was not just one single world, you know. Uh, there was tremendous diversity, and now my understanding is that we live in this kind of uh, multiverse, this multidimensional cosmos, you know, in which this physical realm is one among many, you know. This realm is made, made of matter and energy and consciousness, but um, I sense that there are many other subtle realms out there that are like made up of like consciousness and energy. And of course, energy and matter, after Einstein, we all know that is kind of convertible, interconvertible in itself. So that kind of like brings a kind of like sense of unity or seamlessness to the entire, to the entire cosmos. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that idea of really acknowledging that we we live in a in a pluriverse you know a, a, a not more than it more than a universe and uh it, it that uh, that notion has really helped me understand a lot of things as well because you you it's not that there aren't connections that that there aren't some there isn't some fundamental matrix that that interconnects all these realms but it it, it lets you pull back from always insisting that there has to be one singular way of organizing uh, uh, the world. And so it's a, it's a quite a, a, a liberating, um, perspective, but since you mentioned these experiences, let's, let's talk about them. Let's talk about, uh, you know, uh, why it's not sufficient to just say the, to take the kind of contextualist view that, well, we're, we're sort of making up these stories and then we, we run them in our own little experiences and there really isn't anything ontological. There really isn't anything about the nature of being in these experiences. They're just kind of stories we're telling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're saying, no, there's something, there's something insufficient about that. And it's partly based on, mm-hmm. on your, your experiences and the experiences of others. So what, what are some of those things that have pointed yes. beyond that view? Sure. Thank you. Um, well, um, of course, uh, there is tremendous um, amounts of reports, you know, from practitioners in the different traditions, you know, uh, of encounters, you know. But for me, the two, there is two phenomena that uh, that kind of like I think really challenge like this kind of like materialistic, scientific, naturalistic understanding of religion, you know. And I really think like uh, more than suggest. Um, the existence of something ontologically autonomous and rich, you know, in however you understand that uh, out there in those walls. And I think both of them has to do with um, entheogenic psychedelic evidence. And um, uh, and I discuss both of these phenomena in the book. Uh, one of them uh, comes from the research from Stanislav Grof, but also uh, from any kind of like, a, you know, systematic psychedelic research in which uh, this is the phenomenon that they call um, 
transpersonal access to cross-cultural symbolism, you know, in which like um, practitioners sometimes with no knowledge of religion, like uh, completely secular, or um, for example, Christian people that have never, you know, studied Buddhism or Kabbalah, you know, uh, they would have like um, experiences of, for example, the tree of life, the Kabbalistic tree of life, or um, Tibetan Buddhist mandalas, but they would not only saw those um, uh, images, but they would completely have a tremendous esoteric understanding of the different uh, archetypal uh, principles embedded in the tree of life, for example, or uh, the different meanings of the different colors and parts of the Tibetan Buddhist mandala, something that even some students of religion, you know, wouldn't be able to say from the tip of their heart. So how to explain that? How to explain that and uh, uh, more systematic research needs to be done about this phenomenon but uh, for me was like uh, something really really important uh, I did like uh, the training in holotropic breathwork with Stan Grove in the early 90s and um, and also through my own experiences with uh, teacher plants and entheogens I have some of those experiences some of those encounters in which like I encountered beings that are uh, I only later uh, could recognize who they were in the you know traditional iconography, religious iconography, but uh, they were completely surprising, and my previous studies and understandings had not prepared me, had not prepared me to either respect them or to to understand them. So. Um, so that's one. That's one. And then the other series of phenomena that uh, for me also has been quite mind blowing and um, was what I call um, share psychedelic visions or share entheogenic visions uh, that happen with your open eyes. Um, you know, Eric, it's, it's very could be very easy from from scientists, from materialist philosophers. To dismiss, you know, the cognitive, the epistemic value of psychedelic visions. When we're talking about someone with their eyes closed, you know, in an ayahuasca ceremony or an LSD ceremony, you know, and of course like, they're going to say, well, uh, they're having private hallucinations, their brain hallucinating with this drug. Although, as I mentioned before, some, some of those visions, like the ones of cross-cultural symbolism, are harder to explain. But um, it is much harder to dismiss, you know, uh, as um, private brain hallucinations, when like two, three, even four people um, are seeing uh, with their eyes open the same visions, the same phenomena in the external world. For example, like uh, the energetic dimension of reality, like different vortexes of energy, different colors, they can contrast with each other. And I experienced that uh, especially with uh, the Cactus San Pedro. I'm a San Pedroista. I've been working with San Pedro for 12 years, 13 years, and uh, offering San Pedro ceremonies for the last three years, only in countries in which it's legal, of course, uh, like Peru. And... Um, and um, during those times, I've had like mind-blowing experiences in which we'd not only uh, me and other practitioners see the same phenomena, uh, not only lights and uh, energies, but also like uh, um, non-physical entities, spirits, you know. And in some of those experiences, uh, I was like so... Um, I had like my research hat on and I uh, was very skeptical and I was like, oh my God, it's not possible what's going on. And uh, so I would really kind of be questioning the other practitioners, like some of them 
They were very young, first time doing San Pedro, and I would tell them, listen, um, what is what you see in that corner there, you know? And uh, and then the person would describe exactly what I was seeing. For example, like like an indigenous person, like on his knees, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and of course, there was no one there. It was like a vision. Uh, it was like a spirit entity. So things like this also like um, brought home to me that uh, there is something going on that uh, that sent scientific naturalistic accounts, uh, and especially the so-called collective hallucinations models, they cannot really explain, you know, because uh, it is one thing they may be able to explain some of those lies through appealing through the, you know, cortical um, architecture of the brain, you know, like of the eyes, you know, but uh, when you are talking about these more elaborate visions of different entities, autonomous entities you relate with, it is much harder to explain from that perspective. Yes, I I would say you know, and it's it's funny uh, uh, the that I was I was just uh, writing about uh, Terence McKenna and 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 Dennis McKenna and La Chirera, their famous experiment at La Chirera, and that's one of the significant moments there too. Is that there's a point where they both have a a shared hallucination of a of a, uh, a mushroom turning into the the, the planet Earth. Um, and I was thinking about just that, that what, what do you do with these kinds of experiences? And it, it, I, it's, I think it's really important to have this kind of open idea where we just don't know. We don't know the extent of, of, of ontology. And even if it challenges our scientific models, where, where would that consistency come from that allow two people to see the same hallucination? And you can, you know, you can make elaborate ideas. Oh, well, they're both sort of picking up signals and somehow there's a social cue and blah, blah, blah. And you can come up with these explanations. Okay, that's fine. But I think the point that you're making is that we don't have to, we don't have to stop thinking critically in order to acknowledge that there are some experiences, some regularly reported phenomena that at the very least compel us to keep the door open. And exactly. it's not, it, 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 we're not just becoming, you know, religionist or, or supernatural thinkers by saying, no, 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 this doesn't quite cut it. We have to allow something, the, the, the possibility that there's some kind of extra dimension or an ontological element to these experiences. But that doesn't mean that you're stopping thinking critically, that you're just accepting whatever view is coming down down the pike. And I think that gets that gets lost a lot because of the yes. politics around scientific explanation. Yes, that's that's really great. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you bringing this point, because for me, it's very important. Uh, that's what I call following, uh, you know, one of one of the past uh, president of the American Philosophical Association, Stroud, he called for an open naturalism. Open naturalism. And it's a naturalism that does not determine a priori what exists and what doesn't exist. And a modern scientific naturalism does that. It's ideological. It's completely metaphysical. It says the only thing that exists is matter and entities uh, studied by physics, you know, and uh, all these other things is mambo-jambo, you know. And like many philosophers of science, uh, um, 
completely denounced this perspective as ideological and metaphysical uh, at the same status as religious traditions, you know. So, um, and at the same time, um, once you embrace this open naturalism, uh, as you were pointing out, it's simply an openness, openness to entertain the feasibility that we may live in a much deeper and mysterious and vast cosmos that uh, we have been told in a school and at the university, you know. And uh, in that way also is an openness to come out of our own uh, Western ethnocentrism. Because, uh, you know, we live in this, uh, you know, what is called the post-colonial, right? Uh, Episteme in academia, you know, and there is something valuable there, you know, because uh, uh, what I've been calling also in this book and in other places is like, uh, can we have like also a symmetrical encounter with other traditions, with other epistemologies, you know? Can also even have like research programs, you know, that we can like do in collaboration between scientists and uh, and transpersonal psychologists and hey perennialist thinkers and and indigenous healers, you know, and can we like do some kind of research in which we bring all all our paradigms, all our perspectives, you know, our scientific naturalism and different religious epistemologies and indigenous understandings to try to, to make sense of, uh, of, of a variety of phenomena. And I think that it's in that encounter that is both uh, critical and open and embraces both kind of uh, insider and outsider perspectives, you know, and scientific and also kind of like a spiritual perspectives. I think it's in that encounter with the power and the promise and the possibility is oh absolutely i'm i'm very uh inspired by that view and i really liked uh, i i was not familiar with uh, stroud's call for for an open naturalism but it's very much goes along with what i've been trying to do on this show and in my in my more recent uh uh writing it's very it it, it really resonates and it's not just a um a position so much as an attitude Correct. And I think that that attitude, which is open, which has some modesty in it, which is curious, which is still invested in critical thought in the in the discussion of peers rather than the authority of of prophets or dogmatic texts, um, that it that it, it it itself is a kind of spiritual path that involves critical thinking, that involves uh, sensitivity to evidence, that involves an acknowledgement that there's more that we don't know than than that we do know, but that the quest for knowledge is is part of, you know, part of the path. And and it's a, I think it's a very beautiful way to move through the world and to move through these kinds of questions. And for me, it has something to do with with the with part of your title of your of your new book, which is this concept of mystery. And you know, that's kind of a weird word for an, for a scholar to use. What exactly does that mean? Why why you? Why do you say the mystery? It's sort of a romantic word, but you have very specific reasons for talking about the the mystery as part of the context, or really, in some ways, the greatest context for our exploration. So, what does that term mean for you? What what is the mystery? Yes, um, you know, um, part of my project as uh, and this connects with uh, how we did our our conversation. You know, we began our conversation with. You know, like uh, valuing, but also critiquing like this kind of like, uh, you know, perennialist and neoperennialist models that they were trying to honor all the diversity of spiritual traditions. Uh, and at the same time, we talk about how they would, you know, backfire, they would come back to this kind of uh, ideological understandings, you know. So part of my project has been like, how can we talk about uh, 
you know, the unity and diversity of a spiritual tradition while minimizing, uh, if not avoiding, uh, sectarianism, right? While minimizing, if not avoiding, those kind of hierarchical gradation rankings of traditions. So, um, you know, uh, I came with the to the conclusion, and in the postscript of my book, I'm very explicit, that avoiding sectarianism, uh, it's impossible uh, in Western linguistic discourse, you know? Whenever you affirm something, you deny the polar opposite or you value it less, you know? And uh, Derrida, Jacques Derrida has, you know, been a great teacher in that, you know? It's almost impossible to move beyond this kind of hierarchical binaries, you know? I think it's possible to transcend that, that kind of hierarchical thinking in the territory of, um, of um, you know, of experience and uh, in our relationship with others, you know, in, in the way we dialogue, in the way we learn from others, in our attitudes, you know. And that's what uh, I try to do with the term mystery. The term mystery tries more than to affirm that the ultimate principle is mysterious or is this or that, you know, tries to evoke this attitude of uh, humble respect, you know, for what is unknown, you know. And um, and um, so far, it's, it's, you know, all terms has its problems, you know, and there is no, there is no single term that can do the trick. But uh, basically for the mystery, I mean, this kind of like, a, this kind of like creative generative force, you know, um, with which uh, human beings through historical processes we enact, we bring forth, we co-create all those um, spiritual ultimates, all those spiritual worlds, you know. And um, and something important here is that, um, you know, in alignment with uh, the inactive paradigm of cognition, you know, that Francisco Varela and others put together, um, I affirm that there is a no-duality of the mystery and its inactions, you know. As soon as you say there is these inactions like the Tao, Sunyata, Brahma, and God, and there is something behind that is mysterious, you create the hierarchy, right? <laughs> you are already like this the supra-ultimate, you know, that uh, it's kind of like... Uh, but uh, if you affirm the non-duality of the mysterious in its inactions, in the same way that... Uh, you know, a human being is his or her actions, you know, whatever energetic, emotional, contemplative, you know, physical, you know, I would say the mystery is it's an actions, you know, and in this way, it's a way that you, you minimize like uh, those kind of like interreligious hierarchies, you know, uh, there are other ways, other elements in my work uh, that also support uh, that uh, dismantlement of uh, interreligious hierarchies, but uh, uh, I'll leave it here at the moment. Yeah, that's. A, I think it's a, a marvelous way of, of of approaching things, and it's it it's really gets to the heart of it, is particularly with uh, with scientific naturalism or scientism, where that the, the idea of acknowledging mystery and acknowledging that we ourselves are part of an unfolding, you know, creative cosmos that we're that we are active participants in this. Um, really rubs against <laughs> some of the uh, the desire to expunge the obscure and to uh, take away uh, you know the sort of authority that's grounded on revelation and whatever. So it's a very very old old battle that's been going on in in the West anyway for for centuries, and it does feel like there sometimes that there's a a, a kind of rapprochement that involves a kind of critical embrace of mystery, of recognizing that there is this sort of context uh, that, it, that implies a kind of unknowability. But it turns out, I'm looking at the clock, I think we're going to have to end it there. So, uh, yes. 
Jorge, thanks so much for uh, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you very much, Eric. It has been a pleasure, and you're such a gracious interlocutor, and um, I'm very appreciative of the conversation. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Once again, Jorge's new book is Participation and the Mystery, Transpersonal Essays in Psychology, Education, and Religion. So until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>